You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Trail podcast, where we talk to all people doing mad and extreme sports across the world. Today we are joined by Adrian Hayes. Adrian doesn't live in Hong Kong anymore, but he actually used to be here for a few years working as a Gurkha officer and has a fond memories. He's a really energetic man, and even as the interview started, just to get himself into that zone, he was doing press-ups on the floor of our podcast, which is uh, good good fun to see, but it certainly comes across when he talks to us, uh, bringing that energy and that enthusiasm for his sport. So notable about Adrian, among many of his incredible achievements, are uh, climbing Everest and most recently climbing K2. Um, K2 is a mountaineer's mountain, it's called. Uh, you, you can't go up unless you really know what you're doing. And it has one of the highest uh, summit to death ratios, which is a pretty morbid way of measuring uh, how difficult a mountain is. But it's one of the highest in the world. I think it's around 30%, um, which Adrian knows all too well. He tried first uh, in 2014 and the summit conditions weren't good so everybody turned around and made the decision to head for base camp except for two people a father and a son marty and denali uh, they ventured on and uh, unfortunately died um, suddenly you become very face to face with the realities of your sport what's going to happen to you if you go on would i have died did i make the right choice even going in the first place these are all the questions he had to ask himself um, but he decided ultimately to go back and was successful uh, in climbing K2, which uh, would be is an amazing achievement for anybody. He details it all in, a, in his new book called One Man's Climb, where he sort of explores it beyond the realms of mountaineering and the linear story itself, talking about getting away from social media, questioning your own motives. Very uh, pertinent at the moment, given what was going on in Everest last week with a massive death rate hit by uh, a contributed at least a little bit by the uh, the huge queues and traffic jams for people trying to get to the summit at all costs. In fact, I spoke to Adrian a little bit about that and he said that the main cause is people being pushed by social media to get those likes and he encourages mountaineers to look at themselves in the mirror and ask why before they head to the hills like he himself has done. So enough rambling from me. Let's hear from Adrian himself. Excited to hear his story, his ups and downs and ultimately his triumph on the peak of K2. Adrian, so lovely to have you with us today. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mark. And hi, everyone listening. So you just did 25 push-ups on the floor right before getting into this chair. Can you tell us a little bit about that habit? Yes, it could be to to get over some jet lag and to stop me falling asleep in this interview. But uh, normally, no, I've got a routine. Whenever I go on, on stage or speak on TV or radio, I just do 50, 25, 50 press-ups, and uh, just it just wakes me up and makes me sort of energized. When was the first time you did it? Um, actually, not many years ago. I, th- I thought it was about uh, maybe three years ago I started doing it, just to sort of, uh, yeah, you know, I was saying, yeah, we we all got our own sort of strengths, and uh, if I sort of try to come on as this peace, you know, Dalai Lama type character, I, I get lost. Uh, um, you know, my power is in sort of uh, energetic and strength-wise, that sort of thing. So it just makes me feel uh, quite lively. Can I go to sleep now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you are in Hong Kong now launching your book, but you're not new to Hong Kong. You lived here. 
I did indeed. Uh, Pre-handover, I served here for four years as a Gurkha officer in the British Army. And it was some of the greatest times, the best times in my life. And I'm not just saying this because uh, I'm on air in Hong Kong, but this is my favorite city in the world. So uh, I love coming back here. I'm back here a few times every year for, for work. And uh, yeah, it's very special memories and um, it's always great to come back. What was day-to-day life like as a Gurkha here for the four years? Well, I was a young, single British Army officer. So let's just put it like this, playing rugby based up in the new territories and so you know in the weekdays we were we were working hard and sort of weekends we were playing hard let's put it like that to put it mildly so uh yeah it was based around rugby but i did a lot of adventure stuff sailing hiking trail running climbing all that sort of stuff i mean the city's got everything here and for for the hills particularly it's a great place to uh to go running did you know at the time that your life would go in the direction it has do you have the big plans to get out into the the real wild as it were well, it's, it's a great question because I, I left school at, at 16 and with five GCSEs, you know, no A-levels, no university, and spent six years really mountaineering, climbing, kayaking, skydiving, sub-aqua, ocean sailing, doing this whole adventure life. But I didn't really have the self-belief at that stage. And I was good uh, at all of them, I suppose. But the problem is if you're going to excel on any one sport, and I was playing rugby, I was playing soccer as well, if you're really going to excel in one sport, you just do one sport. That, that's it. But I was doing everything. And, but it was, it was, I suppose, the lack of that self-belief. I didn't really think that I could, could do it as a profession. Uh, even though I had polar explorers and mountaineers on my wall as, as a young kid, and I wrote down as a 12-year-old boy, I'm going to climb Everest and join the SAS and live on a desert island and be a polar explorer, all these dreams. And actually writing them down, they all sort of came true. So it's quite uh, ironic. But it took, it took a few years to really sort of... Uh, really come to fruition. So when did it hit you that you were made for this? Well, you know, I had about 10 years in the army, two two years in in a special forces regiment, eight years in the Gurkhas. And then I went back and did did an MBA. Uh, So I got no A-levels, no first degree, but a master's degree, which is quite ironic. But it was on that MBA, I started the first modules on human development, um, personal development things. And I I found it absolutely fascinating. And I sort of continued that studying and it was uh, continued just, just reading and studying and things like this and continued the adventuring, as I said, which I've been doing since 16. And it was really putting them two together because the whole world of coaching, the personal development, got me into the coaching world. And coaching is all about maximizing your potential, your performance, your results, and all these things. And, and I just, it, it was using the concepts, the models, the mantras, the tools and techniques that I really from the early 2000s started to sort of let's let's put this into practice let's see how far i can push this and that's when it gave me all those tools and and confidence to actually take this as as a as a profession as one of my professions i'd add so what was the first time you were like you really went for something big rather than climbing in in general you were, i'm going to go for everest i'm going to go for k2 i'm going to go for the arctic what was it yeah so it depends what you mean by big, because the bigger and bolder you go, the, the longer they become. That's the simple thing. So you can do, in a one-week period, you can do tons of things all across the world. Two weeks, you can do a lot more. Three weeks, you can get, you know, 7,000-meter peaks, things like this. So I'd done all this for many, many years. But when you go to the 8,000-meter peaks, the, the 14, 8,000-meter peaks in the world, you're talking about two months away. And... <laughs> 
because when you're working for a company, and I was working for Airbus at the time, I was selling Airbuses through Middle East and West Asia, um, you know, it's hard to, to ask a company for two months off to do something that might kill you. So it really was, I suppose, Everest was the longest thing I, I did at the time, but I put three years planning to this and a lot of other trips beforehand. But that sort of was was one of my pivotal things in my career. I'd, I'd like, you know, the whole career, I'd say joining Special Forces was a first thing, Sandhurst, officer training at Sandhurst, and then climbing Everest. I put those three things as, as the three most defining things in my life. So even as you sort of led up to Everest, did you know that once you came down, you were going to go on to K2 and the Arctic and the Antarctic? Well, I'll come to K2 in a second. Um, no, I didn't. I just think... And there's an interesting thing, because when I came down from Everest, this was 2006, I felt on top of the world. I felt I could conquer anything. Now, the interesting thing when I look back, and I do a lot of reflection, a lot of awareness stuff, is this was pre-social media days. So all of these things that I've, I'd done since I was 16 and written these goals down since 12, I, I was doing for myself, my own personal development, my personal goals, self-worth, self-respect, all this thing. And Everest was the culmination of that. It was the culmination that the biggest goal I'd, I'd achieved. And I came back walking on water. Everyone since then, I came back to what I call the information overloaded world we live in, social media. And it just becomes this maze, this, this readjustment coming back has, has been pretty tough since then on every big project I've done since 2006. Do you think that's taken away from kind of the purity of adventure? Great, great question. I think it has. And, and I speak in, in the new book about this. You know, we've, wh why we do these big adventures? And, and look, I, I, you know, many listeners here will go, you can go climbing, hiking, running, get into nature. It's a fantastic way to spend your time, apart from the front of the, of the box. But, you know, we do it for freedom. We do it for the, the, the camaraderie in the team, into nature, the air, the sky, all these things you do it for. But you can do this in, in the new territories. You can do it on a walk, a hike, anything. When you do these big goals, you do it really from one main region, it's reason, which is called significance. And that's what I've always done it for. It's for significance. But what's changed, and you said the purity now, is really since 2007 with social media now has come in, I think that internal significance, personal goals, personal self-worth, self-respect, do it for yourself, has been slowly overtaken by recognition, respect, look what I'm doing, look where I am, and dare I say it, you know, look at me. And it has taken away from the purity. I think there's a huge confusion. Even myself, I, even on the later ones, the last few years, I thought, hold on a second, am I still doing this myself? Because we're only human. We, we, we post something on, up on Instagram or Facebook, whatever, and you get 800 likes or something like this, massive likes and hundreds and 200 comments. We're all human and it's, it's fantastic. It's humbling to receive. But then you start thinking, you know, what do I need to do? And just, just you sort of keep pushing. You want to put, put more up. So I think there is a purity gone. And I'll take the, the, the case of, of Alex Honnold, um, who free solo, you know, guy who's been doing phenomenal stuff all his life. I believe for his own self, his personal goals, self-respect, all that internal stuff. Even his latest film, I think he was compromised by, you know, by having a documentary crew there. And I think it went a little bit uneasy with his own ethics. Um, and how do you answer those questions when you say to yourself, how do I know I'm still doing this for me? Again, again great question. I, I always ask myself, and particularly since K2, you know, was really asked, you know, what exactly am I trying to achieve here? What am I trying to achieve? Which is the goal? K2, Everest, you know, 
climb up the peak one-legged blindfolded whatever it is um and then ask myself the second question for the sake of what and then keep going for the sake of what for the sake of what for the sake of what and that strips away all the stuff there and you get down to the real real reasons of why you're doing something and that might that might vary on each thing but what i do say is you know i didn't walk to the south pole to raise awareness for climate change I didn't climb K2 to, to show others that they too can achieve their dreams. And I didn't climb Everest to raise money for the poor in Nepal. And all those causes are, are, are great. They're great causes and people do them. But I, don't, I think when it comes to the professional level, spending two months on a project that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, I don't always think it's ethical to say you're doing it for these causes and if you're if in the case of money raising five thousand dollars and in the case of it perhaps that money and time would be better spent going directly to the charity you're claiming to do it for i think a venture for charity has been is a great idea and i'm sure many listeners have done things and it's great at the smaller levels but when it comes to these expensive projects i think there's a perhaps a lack of uh, integrity about some of it and um you know i think we just got to be honest about why we're doing these things and do you know why you're doing it then each one's different. Uh, I'd say, I'd say, for all of them, it's for that internal significance that that I've always had, and it's always driven me. But as I said earlier, it, it's it's also compromised myself. And I'll tell you the the biggest one that that uh, really changed something. It was a year after K two, so uh, three years ago. Um, I climbed uh, four years ago, actually, for twenty fifteen. I was climbing Makalu, the world's fifth highest mountain. And it was going to be followed by Lotsi. And we got caught by the Nepal earthquake. So avalanches everywhere. You know, we were safe. We got there. But as a Nepalese speaker, former paramedic, I was medically qualified. I had medical supplies, acclimatized. Um, I had all the equipment, everything. I embarked on my own mission in Nepal to see what I come across, just treat people. And... At the time, I agonized about what, you know, what I was doing this. And I thought, do I just do this on myself? And actually, there was a, a quake two weeks after the first quake. And I was, you know, one of the first ones up to this new area. And I was treat, I treat about 150 people, all sorts of things. But at the time, I thought, do I just do this myself or do I, I post it? And of course, I posted it. And then I, because I, I got raised money for it. But of course, then I got all these posts that said, you know, you're a hero, Adrian. You know, what you're doing is fantastic. And and I really sort of regretted it, thought, hold on, this is not the white saviour thing. You know, I don't want this to be about me, me saving the world, saving Nepal. This is my own little mission to a country that's dear to me, speak the language, help me practice my medicine, help them a country and help me uh, help the Nepalese. So I've really, I've carried on the project every year. We do a medical camp and I just keep it quiet. It's just my own little thing for Nepal. I don't want to make a big thing about it because, um, as I said, I'm doing that. I, I I do that. That's my little thing for Nepal, my lookbook for the world. Um, but I, don't, I do these expeditions for myself. How do you balance that uh, internal significance with uh, subsequently writing a book about it? Now, that is different. The, the book is definitely, I'm, I'm here, I'm promoting this book around the world. Why am I doing this? I want this book to be a, a bestseller. Why? For the sake of what? I, it's not just a book about climbing a mountain because the, the book, the climb the mountain, that's about me. That's my story. But it's the other bits of the book that I think is the most powerful things. And I talk about a lot of lessons about the reasons we do these things. I talk about risk and reward, gut instinct, the information overloaded world that we live in and how when you go on these expeditions, your mind is on a completely different frequency, how we've got to get away from materialism and consumerism. So there's a, there's a lot of sociology 
social things. I like to think of it as a book as much about a story, as much as a lesson in human development, society, real teamwork, real relationships, and the world we live in, as it is the story of climbing K2. So can you talk to us what it, what it is like when you say that adjusting coming back in the world of social media? How does that actually manifest itself? It's horrible. And the, the worst ones were the polar trips because on the mountains, on the big mountains, yeah, you're in nature, you're in places that people can't survive, but you are surrounded. There's, there's a lot of other climbers there. There's, there's, there's a lot of bars, base camp, you have good food, there's cooks, there's chefs, there's porters, a lot of people. On the polar world, you're on your own. You're just with your two team, two or three teammates in your own little mind for, for two months, three months at a time. And what I found, and this is why I've been banging on about social media and how it's affecting us, and not just social media, but information overload for the past six years. It's interesting, the last year and a half, it's now coming mainstream about what it's doing to us. And, you know... <laughs> But neuroscientists are actually discovering it's changing the shape of our brains. You know, our brains cannot cope with it. So when I go on an expedition, I'm on this different frequency, different wavelength, different mindset. Your observation muscles, your all-round observation is just, it's just on steroids. It's just massive. Your antennas, just awareness, contemplation, critical thinking, problem-solving, awareness, observation, all these things are at the highest, highest levels. When we come back to the so-called real world and, you know, absolutely bombarded with all this stuff, whether it's emails, text messages, WhatsApp, Snapchat, Facebook, message, uh, Instagram, all the rest of it, you know, it's, it's help. I'm, I'm not a celebrity. Get me out of here. It's, it's absolutely just overwhelming. And, and I believe, you know, human beings have been around for, for quite a while yeah, but what's changed the last 20 years? We're, we're just bombarded by all this information and these screens. We weren't designed to sit in front of screens. We were designed to run and to get into fresh air and to do something called talking, communication. So it's, it's quite a good thing, actually, even picking up a phone or relatively new invention, actually speaking to somebody, it's quite good. So it's a real hard adjustment coming back is the, is the short answer. And it sometimes, in the case of Antarctica, it took me about a whole year to come to terms with it. So have you been able to come up with a kind of a procedure for easing yourself back into it? Uh, yeah, keep off social media. Um, <laughs> well, what I've learned, and as the, the trouble is it's part of our work. We, you cannot, you know, be a Luddite. You cannot dissolve yourself or keep yourself away. You've got to use the stuff. But what I've tried to do now, and I use, I use it much, I use it very infrequently. I, I go on it, I go on a couple few times a week, catch up with a few people, post something um, if it's important. Um... But it's really a case of, of just putting it down and not not going around with the whole thing. And and it's say people are quite in, quite interesting species. You are when you actually talk to people, it's actually quite interesting. You actually learn something from everybody. So yeah. So I, the strategy is just to try and um, try and get down. But I'm what I like. You know, those of us who do this extreme sports of any time, we, we're quite in touch with our bodies. And I, you know, cigarette smoke really absolutely makes me in a panic you know I, I just something in cigarette smoke actually chokes me altitude i i feel that heat suffer and and even i can feel my brains being zapped by by all this information overload and that's why i just love getting to nature and look you don't i think to to read to uh to listeners uh listen to the show that you know you don't have to go on a two-month three-month expedition i think the greatest adventures you can do is like going on a little crag rock climbing or a hike just out of a, a you know out of the city here or sailing i think going on the sea is a is a real great sense of freedom when you go on the water 
Yeah, speaking of expeditions, I was reading around and learned that you're an advisor for Marsmon, the company that's sending or looking to send people and establish the first uh, settlement on Mars. What's yeah? What do you do as an advisor for Marsmon? Yeah, so they approached me uh, for two reasons. One, because my experience on long camping trips, long package holidays uh, on these expeditions, and also from my my team coaching work. Because my other work, and I said, you know, from beginning. Full-time adventuring is only one part of my work. And most most professional ventures usually guide people. They do it all the time. For me, it's only one part of my work. I've, I've got a venturing hat, a speaking hat, leadership team development, executive coaching hat. I do a few documentaries. I speak on sustainability and a few other things. So it was those two things that Mars asked me to come on, on board. And, uh, you know, the real thing on teamwork, it's it's absolutely critical. It's it's, it's one of my great passions of real relationships, real teamwork, because, you know, you get it wrong on an expedition, people lose their lives. You get it wrong on a big sporting team, you lose World Cups. Get it wrong on a Mars One project, a four-man team going to Mars. It's a bit late on a one-way mission to Mars. But the business world out there does so little with, with teamwork. They'll do a once-a-year team-building day, and that's it. Now, let me tell you, you don't become the All Blacks by doing a building a structure out of cardboard and plastic you don't get up the top of k2 by going 10 pin bowling and you don't go to mars by crossing a swimming pool in a, in a raft with full of ropes you've got to do the work and that's what that's a key component of my work so what should teamwork look like if not those kind of activities real yeah those activities give one benefit what's of all and that's it fun that's all they will give they won't if you are, if we've got a problem you and me they won't bridge that that assumptions work, that feedback work, it's all built around communication stuff. And there's so many tools and techniques and, and models when, when this whole mantra of communication. I mean, it's, a, it's a great overused word, you know, communication is so important to our, to our work. But you've got to strip communication down. There's so many things with it. And you know, I'll give you one little um, thing that we did on, on, on K2. One, or in fact, all my expeditions in recent years is, is team agreements. You know, those agreements are absolutely fundamental. Everything is laid on the table. And one of them, and there's 25, 30 agreements that everything's there. One of them is we have the implicit agreement that we will not take things personally. So I can say anything to my teammates and they can say to me and it won't be taken personally because we've got the model, the mantra of Everything is for the sake of the team. And I defer to that team. I sacrifice it because the team, not the individual, is the ultimate champion. Is that easier said than done when somebody shouts at you? Well, provided you've got the agreements in place at the beginning. And this is why, where so many corporate teams don't have it. They, they don't have these agreements in place. So if someone shouts at you, you know, you've got to look at what's their objectives. I mean, you know, we all get, we're all guilty of blaming and shouting at sometimes. And sometimes raising your voice is necessary. Um, <laughs> You know, if there's a if there's a rock falling down a, a rock face on K2 and you've taken your eye off the ball, you've endangered your teammates, you know, you're not going to go, oh, dear, oh, oh, golly, oh, gosh, that was unfortunate. You know, you're going to you're going to shout it. But um, it's that fundamental agreement that the team is the ultimate champion. When you've got that in place and that you've got that agreement not to take things personally, that you can say everything, you've got this understanding, this trust, this communication that's second to none. And I think, you know, looking at sporting teams around the world, that the New Zealand All, All Blacks have, have had it, won the Rugby World Cup year, and, uh, and they have been the number one rugby team for the last 500 years. But uh, they've got an understanding, which is, you know, psychologists and scientists have sort of looked at this team and said they've, um, you know, what's going on here? There's just this, this 
understanding that's just second to none in all sporting teams. And I'd like to think on on my K2 expedition and some of my other things we've had as well. What kind of tangible actions are you putting in place with the Mars One guys to make them get to that that place? Well, we're at early stages. It's, um, you know, going to Mars, it was going to be 2026. It's now 2032 at the, at the earliest. So there's a long time. In fact, the Mars One project has had a bit of a financial uh, mishap recently. So we're so things have been delayed. So, uh, you know, I've done a few sort of uh, pod calls, uh, concepts with them and ambassadorial roles. But the real, real work will, uh, will start in a few years' time if we get the finances on track. So with the agreements, you're saying that those kind of uh, t- to have those terms set on paper should work in the corporate setting as well as it does in the sporting adventure. The models, the mantras, the tools, the techniques, the lessons are exactly the same on making a great team, whether it's a sporting team, a Mars One project, an expedition team, as a team in the corporate world. But as I said, the corporate world generally ninety-eight percent of them do nothing apart from. They'll do lots of stuff individually, star talent, leadership development, personal development, but they'll do nothing for the team. And I think we've got the whole concept wrong in many ways, ways because we're, we reward individuals, promotion, remuneration is done a lot individually. And I think, and it's changing gradually, if you start to reward a team, get those four-man teams, six-man teams working, these, these companies could see their profits soar. It's a tangible results-based based, uh, lessons and and techniques we bring into uh, the workforce. So what else do you think is the most misunderstood thing about teamwork in whatever setting, given that you've experienced it in so many different ways? I just think people don't, as I said before, people don't really give it the importance that it's deserved. And so uh, agreements as one, team agreements, taking things personally. I think that the, the, the other one is the the actions of feedback, giving feedback. People don't know how to do it. And and when I've done companies, the most startling fact is when you speak to companies is most bosses and subordinates, the only time they really give feedback is the once a year appraisal. It's too late then. You know, you should be doing it, you know, whatever you agree on, whether it's every week, every day when it happens. You, but again, it's, that's up to you. But just that the, the way of giving feedback, people don't know how to do it. And so now coming back to Hong Kong, you were saying, you were saying earlier that you're back here a couple times a year. Yeah, I, I like to come back usually, again, for, for leadership development or, or team, uh, team coaching workshops for, for companies here and often on a public event for, for certain things. And this week is for the Asia-Pacific launch of, of the new book. So that's why I here did a, did a um, presentation last night, which was uh, packed out. We had all five people in my sitting room. Um, no, we had, uh, we had about uh, nearly 200 people at, uh, had to do a second sitting organized by the uh, Royal Geographical Society, who've been great supporters over the years, and uh, supported by Bookazine, the, book, uh, the bookstores here in Hong Kong. So we did that last night off to Singapore um, this week, and then back again uh, in, in October for more public events. Do you feel like you experienced the place differently, or have experienced the place differently over the years? Or are there things that you keep going back to that kind of uh, run in, through? In Hong Kong? Yeah. Or you, yeah. Well, uh, I used to have some um, big nights out when I was a, a young, uh, um, early 20-something. Uh, and now I usually work my butt off when I'm here. I don't stop. So uh, it's changed slightly. And I hard, to be honest, I hardly drink anymore. It's just, uh, you know, maybe a glass of wine, a couple of glasses of wine a week, let alone uh, a few more per night. But, um, you know, you've got to look after your body, and that's the whole thing. It's, uh, um, you know doing these extreme things, although I've taken a, a slight break the last couple of years for, for personal reasons. 
But, um, you know, I've, there's a few more things. Again, look after you. You've only got one body, and I look after it as much as I can. So um, <clears throat> your book is about your time on K2, um, amongst other things. But uh, you attempted to climb it twice. The first time, uh, people, people lost their lives. Um, how did that how did that make you reflect on all of this sort of path you're going down with adventuring in general? Yeah, I, I suppose to to your listeners, but should explain exactly why K2 is 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 so renowned. I mean, it's the world's second highest mountain. It's located in Pakistan, Chinese border, um, 1,500 kilometers north of Everest and Nepal. But the difficulty is, it's the weather's always appalling. The snow conditions always appalling. Rockfall dangers, avalanche dangers, a technical rock climb, technical ice climb. And the stats, you know, show its difficulty in itself. There's about 6,000 people who've now summited Everest, and there's about just over 400 people who've climbed K2. Apart from that, the low success rates, you've got this high death to summit ratio, which is running around one in five now. For every five um, climbers that reach the top one will die trying. It was one in four. So you've got a high risk low reward. Most years nobody gets up there and you've got a high risk of being killed trying to do it. So you've got to really know your wits about why you're trying to do this. So uh, 2013, the first year, you know, there was only 20 climbers of us on there and pushing up. Things were, you know, people were dying around the surrounding big mountains. Conditions were bad, snow conditions. Um, and we, and sadly, two guys who went up uh, paid for it with their lives when the rest of us came down. Um, so the reflection, you know, going back to the, the question, I mean, I, I was in a, you know, my, my personal life was, was in a crisis, uh, for starters. We'd lost two friends on the mountain. I'd failed something, and I don't usually fail things. Food poisoning. So, you know, there was a lot of time to ref reflect on this. It was, um, you know, I used the thing, not everything happens for a reason, but, but things happen, and it's up to us to find the reason. And I like to think that, that that's probably true for all people in all walks of life. You know, things will always happen. And it's up to us to really get those antennas out and working and, and uh, try and find out you know, what was the reason behind this. But, you know, that thing called gut instinct, it, it told us to go down in 2013. And it also told me to go back in 2014. I just, something told me that rather than give up, I've got to go back there. And, uh, and I went back in 2014 and thankfully uh, some did. But luck will play a good, good part in that. We were very lucky. How long did it take for that gut instinct to draw you back? Well, the last view I had of K2 when we failed in 2013, and, and I was I wanted to walk on my own. You know, the team retreated and everyone was together, and I, I just needed time on my own to think, to contemplate, reflect about what this whole thing was about. And I kept looking back, kept looking back, kept looking back at the mountain, trying to work out the whole thing. And the last look I had the mountain, because K2 is so remote, you only see it on the final trek into to base camp, which takes itself about eight to nine days. It's in the back end of beyond. And the final look of that mountain, you know, it sounds a bit sort of hoo-ha, but I sort of looked at it and I, I sort of felt this thing sort of saying that you've got to come back. I've got to go back. And I think I, I decided then that I'm going to go back next year. But I was in bits when I came home. It took, it took months to get over it. Was it hard to go back so soon or did you have to keep the challenge fresh in your mind? Well, I had about, you know, you only do it at certain times a year. So K2 in Pakistan, the climbing season's June, June and July. Um, in the other Nepal 8,000ers, it's, it's, it's April uh, and May. So I had a whole year to sort of prepare myself for it. But, you know, I had big problems, which was with my children back home. And 
I hadn't seen them basically, but uh, that's a long story, but I won't go to that now. But I think what I happened, what I did on the second year compared to the first year, because I think the first year, if even myself, even with the monumental challenge that K2 was and the low success rates and the high risk rates, you know, perhaps because I don't usually fail things, perhaps there was the slightest degree of complacency and perhaps that I was distracted from what was going on at home. And the second year, it was just complete blinkers on. And I went training like a madman. And I became as as fit on that second year, 2014, as I was climbing Everest 10 years earlier, which was the fittest I've been since I did Special Forces selection when I was, um, you know, 22 years of age. So that was that's what it takes. I mean, it is absolute blinkers on. You can't have any distractions at all, because if it does, it could cost you your life. When you came around that corner on the uh, approach the second time and saw K2, did you feel like you expected to feel? The first time, I think there was a bit of an escape from what was going at home. And as I said, there was a lot of humor and there it is and a lot of joking that first time. The second time it was real. You know, we'd, we'd experienced death ourselves. We knew what it was about and that total focus, total, total zonal, into the zone as athletes will say. And uh, and that was with me that pretty much the most of that second year. So, you know, it, it's the unknowns always are difficult for us. We, you know, human beings, we like the known, good or bad. We don't do very well with the unknown, whatever it is, a mountain to climb, a, a cancer scare or a lump on somewhere on your body or the uncertainty whether you're going to have your job in, in two months' time. We don't do very well. The known is much more easy to deal with. And uh, I suppose the second year, we'd known what it was about. I knew what it was like struggling up those high slopes I know what it's, I knew what it was like sleeping in those camps on the edge of a precipice. It cramped up, built on the platforms of debris of, of snow and other rotten tents from previous years. I know what it was like to, to climb that steep rock slopes, those ice slopes. So it was, uh, as I said, it was far more real for that second time. Cool. Well, I think we're sort of coming to the end of the pod now. But uh, thank you very much for taking the time to, to share. Um, how long are you in Hong Kong before you uh, fly home or you fly to Singapore next? Yeah, so just here this uh, this week uh, in Hong Kong, and so I come a few times a year, but back at the the last week in October, and we'll be doing another some more public events on the book, and um, probably the Hong Kong Literature Festival as well, which is uh, starts the first of November, and uh, I'd even get up to Japan to watch a little bit of rugby in the World Cup as well. Watching England get knocked out in the pool stages again, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my money's on New Zealand, as as most people would say. But let's see, it's you know Ireland. Uh, let's see. I mean, rugby's my real passion as as a sport, I, and I love it for that for the team the teamwork. And you know, rugby's such a great team because you have short, fat guys, tall, dashing wingers, and everyone fits in for the sake of the team. It's a great team sport. Are you a tall, dashing winger on your own? <laughs> I, I was a well-built centre, actually, yeah. and uh, probably a bit too small to be a centre of high repute, but I would love to become a rugby player. But again, you know, it's about concentrating on your strengths, and, and I found out in my teens when I started climbing mountains that um, my, and, and as I said, you, I did every sport, but my real key seemed to be this ultra endurance. I seemed to get better as people fell away after a day, 24 hours, 48 hours. I seemed to get stronger as time went on for some, for some unknown reason. That put me in good stead. Mountains, in the jungle, special forces selection, and above all on the poles uh, many years later. Well, thanks again for everybody um, tuning in. And thanks, Mary, for, uh, for, for helping me out, yep. uh, for me as helping always. you out. And uh, thanks again, Adrian. Thanks, guys.
Wow, what an incredible story. I mean, there's so many things for us to relate to in there about the uh, motivations that we're getting from social media, but so many things it's going to be impossible for us to relate to having never been to those sort of remote and dangerous and stark places. If you want to know more about Adrian and his exploration, then uh, I recommend you get his book, uh, One Man's Climb. It's really quite an incredible story. But also, I think he's coming back to Hong Kong in October, and I'm sure he'll be delivering speeches at the likes of the Royal Geographical Society. The best place to keep up to date with that is on his social media, at Adrian Hayes. That's A-D-R-I-A-N-H-A-Y-E-S. Um, you can also follow uh, Mary and myself on Twitter. That's at Mary Huey and at Adventure Agnew. Um, and of course, press subscribe on the podcast to hear more uh, exciting news. Uh, over this weekend, we'll have the Trail World Championships, which of course we covered in our last Trail podcast with uh, the Hong Kong uh, hero, Leung, going across there to represent. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we will have heard all about her incredible success. She's not the only one. Wong Ho Chung, he's representing Hong Kong as well. We've got Brian McFlynn for Ireland. We've got uh, Bogdan for the Ukraine and Matt Leung for uh, Cambodia. All Hong Kong based all heading across to Portugal for that epic race it's really really exciting times but I'm sure you all you listeners have plans ahead whether that's a casual hike or a 100k run over this weekend make sure you enjoy yourself make sure you uh, make those miles tick away by listening to the Adventure Trail podcast